Welcome to another episode of the Confessions of a Recovering Landlord podcast, where you'll learn the secrets commercial landlords would prefer you not know. I'm your host, Jan Gibbons, along with my co-host and experienced commercial real estate broker, Bob Gibbons. That's me. Brought to you by Riata Commercial Realty, where we exclusively represent users of office and warehouse properties. Landlords have representation. Do you? You're supposed Hi. to be smiling well, for the intro. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you for joining us. I'm not sure what condition we're in, but we're going to roll with it. I was reading an article recently, and the title really captured me, and it was Power is the New Parking. And I just love that. Um, it's primarily discussing industrial buildings, but I thought that really put a bow on everything we're talking about today. What do you think? I, I, I like it. It's catchy. Um, I think it's about a little bit outdated because to compare parking to uh, power is what they're really doing is they're comparing saying parking was the big deal for mm -hmm. office space. And, um, and it's really not anymore. And it hasn't been for quite a while, ever since pan the pandemic, since right. COVID parking has not been a, an issue. And uh, you it's know, like it, orange is the new black. I, I mean, that's kind of what it was coming off of. Right. I, I, I get what they were trying to do, but I'm, I'm just saying that the analogy wasn't quite, didn't quite land with me because mm -hmm. parking is not the issue anymore um, when it comes to office buildings anyway. And especially with uh, not just the issue of work from home and people not coming to the office, but also from the standpoint of um, people working more remotely traveling a lot um, pre-pandemic, I'm saying, and also um, with driverless cars and Uber and all this kind of stuff, you know, parking was becoming a much less important thing uh, before the pandemic ever hit. That just accelerated it. But but yeah, it's catchy. I like it. I, I think, you know, the it's probably better to say the one thing that industrial buildings must have in the future uh, kind of says well, the same but thing. You got to flesh this out because <clears throat> every single industrial building already has power. Right. So I think what we're really saying is more power. Well, so let, we'll, and, we'll and get to why, that. And why? And why? So, so let's let's first of all talk about how tenant demands have changed over time. So maybe that, that's causing place. this, right? Yeah. So that that's a good way place to start. So I mean, like if we look at office buildings, for example. Um, how have those changed since, say, the 80s, 90s, whatever? Mm -hmm. um, you know, back in the 80s, we didn't even have internet. You know, <laughs> we needed phones, phone lines into buildings for fax machines and phones. Then the 90s came along and we needed internet. So everybody was lighting up buildings with internet. And then all of a sudden we had to, buildings started trying to compete with each other. And so they added more amenities like fitness centers, common conference areas, um, food service, et cetera. And what do they want now in 2023? Pickleball courts. Yay. Pickleball <laughs> courts. <laughs> That's going to be the thing to bring people back to work. <laughs> you had a favorite pickleball court recently, as I recall. I did. I saw one in the downtown Santander tower building um, online and I was so excited about it. And then I was talking to the leasing agent for that building and she goes, it's a pop-up. I'm like, no. <laughs> well, it's just there temporarily. 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's in one of their ballrooms. <laughs> well, I mean, I saw a photo of it. It kind of looked cool, but at the same it time, did. I thought, well, you got a like a 10 foot ceiling. You're not going to be able to, <laughs> you know, hit a lob very high or it's going to be the end of the game. It might actually help my game <laughs> control ball <laughs> in the so, confined space. So in COVID, you know, the the amenities, so to speak, or at least the changing demands of tenants were really focused on additional cleaning, new air filtering, uh, things like that. But, you know, that sounds good, but it would sure be nice if people would come back to the office to actually use those things, mm -hmm. right? Um, so what about industrial tenants? And that that's really the focus of our podcast today. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you look at industrial tenants, you know, they widely vary. I mean, you have people that do nothing but like bring product in and then ship it out. Other people that you know, manufacture like really heavy manufacturing, like steel and, you know, all kinds of stuff. You know, we have, uh, I have a friend who does cosme cosmetics uh, manufacturing and others that do <clears throat> cold storage. And so we had the, a client that did scrap metal. Right. I loved touring his place, but you talk about hard work, hot and dusty. Yeah. So, you know, what do, what do industrial demand, uh, tenants demand? Well, some demand dock high, some want grade level where they can just drive the vehicles in. Some want really high clear height. Others don't care about that. Um, outdoor storage is really critical for some. I mean, we've got a client right now we're looking for space. They want like three to five acres of outdoor space and uh, maybe a 10,000 square foot building. You know, that's that's very different than what a, a lot of people need. So it's a unicorn. Well, there's just so much variability mm -hmm. in industrial requirements. And it's just not a one size fits all. It's not a commodity at all. And um, so that creates a lot of a lot of challenges for the future of, of industrial. Well, and it's also kind of bifurcated by age, right? The older mm -hmm. the building, the less likely they are to have what today's industrial client needs. So yeah. are you only placing mm -hmm. people in new builds? No, I, I mean, I would say that older buildings have challenges uh, because they have, like in, in, for example, in some of the older properties in Dallas, <clears throat> there are no truck courts. You literally have to pull the I'm, truck. I'm sorry. What's a truck court? And is it a pop-up? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> a truck court is basically a big area where the trucks can turn around and back into the, the dock. And it's a truck court is usually going to be on the property of the industrial building in a new newer building. But in the buildings that were built in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, a lot of those literally have no truck court you'll have dock doors that face the main road in front of the building and so a truck has to basically pull parallel to the build to the street uh, and then back into the uh, dock using the street as the truck court and, and so it always it, happens when i'm on that street and late for an appointment <laughs> that is true it does feel that way and if you have a situation where you have a whole bunch of those in a, in the same area, like, you know, Brook Hollow does, uh, a lot of other places do, um, you know, those places can get pretty congested. And then you have people trying to just drive around in their, you know, passenger vehicles, and you have parking for the employees that work in those places. It can get fairly chaotic at times. And what's interesting is um, I read somewhere where somebody estimated that 82% 
of buildings in the U.S. were built before 2000. And that's not, that's not to say that all buildings built before 2000 are a problem. It's just saying, you know, you have this dichotomy between newer buildings and older buildings. I took a look in Dallas <clears throat> and it's more like 55% of the buildings in DFW were built before 2000. So that just means that we have a far higher percentage of newer buildings than the rest of the country, which is not surprising because when you look at the real rapid growth of, of the uh, industrial in Dallas, Fort Worth, <clears throat> you know, the last 23 years is not, uh, not a surprising timeline. Okay. So what basically is driving the need for all this extra electricity? You know, that's a good question. And I would say today it really hasn't hit us yet, but it's about to. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, the, the, power that people require today is really a function of, you know, their, their lighting, the equipment that is being used, how much of the space has to be air conditioned, um, things that we've had for a long time. So the demands right now are not any big surprise, but what's coming is the thing that is uh, going to make the demand for power the issue. And that really is the efforts by governments to uh, create, you know, to decarbonize the environment, which which basically means getting rid of the uh, uh, internal combustion engine and converting over to electronic uh, electric vehicles. And so the EV um, push is really what's going to drive this. And so, for example, if you're going to be building a brand new building, what are you going to do differently? What should you do differently today, knowing that for example, in California, they have regulations that say no more internal combustion engines by 2020, 2035. Mm -hmm. So, you know, their regulations in California right now say that, you know, you cannot after January 1st of 2024, drive a vehicle, uh, a how a car, I mean, that I'm sorry, not a car, a truck that has more than 800,000 miles and is more than 13 years old. So whichever those things happens last ends the life of that vehicle. So I thought if, that was eased up on though this week. Well, there was some um, some sort of compromise between the California state air regulators and the truck and engine manufacturers um, just last Thursday, and they reached an agreement that'll give companies a little more flexibility. And, um, you know, I don't know all the details of that, but, you know, we're talking about companies like Cummins, Daimler, Ford, Navistar, uh, General Motors, Volvo, you know, some of the biggest manufacturers of heavy uh, trucks reached an agreement. And um, it was interesting. I, I highlighted a, a, a quote um, from um, the partnership, whatever this partnership of all these, it says a commitment from the companies to meet California's vehicle standards that will require the sale and adoption of zero emissions technology in the state, regardless of whether any other entity challenges California's authority to set more stringent emissions. Uh, they're basically saying that their agreement was this commitment. And what was funny to me about that is they're basically saying that the uh, manufacturers can meet the requirements regardless of what any other issues come along. Well, what's the other issue that's going to come along? Well, and by the way, that 
mandate was pushed out to 2045. But um, anyway, the the thing that's interesting to me is I, I listened to a really great podcast recently from uh, it's called uh, Supply Chain Saga. And on that podcast, they were interviewing the senior vice president of the California Truckers Association. And in that, they were talking about all these regulations, like the thing I just mentioned about, you know, if it, it had a truck, when it reaches 13 years of age and um, 800,000 miles, then it's dead in the water. It can't be used in California anymore. And uh, so what does that mean? It, it means that you are forced to then buy another vehicle, another truck, that has less than that. So you go out and buy a, a five-year-old used vehicle with, you know, a hundred thousand miles on it. Well, now you can continue using that for, you know, another eight years and 700,000 miles. But at some point those vehicles won't be able to be driven anymore. And, uh, and they're trying to replace all these. Well, number one, the electrical vehicles are way more expensive, like $400,000, Instead of, I don't know, a, a used truck, you know, the example I was uh, given was twenty to $100,000, dollars to $50,000 for a used truck. So just the initial, you know, upfront cost is drastically different. Um, but the bigger issue is how are you going to get those vehicles charged if you're replacing them with electronic vehicles, electric vehicles? And, and that's really the crux of the issue because... The estimates are that for, you know, California, as an example, is trying to replace all the passenger vehicles on the, on the streets with EVs. At the same time, they're trying to make all these mandates for the trucks to go EV as well. Well, to have enough generation, power generation to charge all those electric vehicles would require at least a doubling of the amount of power that's already being produced today in California. So what if we just don't send any more toilet paper and lipstick to California? It's not a Tr matter truckers of truckers just stop at the Nevada line. <laughs> if it were that way, that would be fine. You know, if, if it was simply the amount, the, the trucks going into California from someplace else, but it's also trucks coming out of California from the port of long beach, the port of Los oh. Angeles, all the other ports along the West coast, um, so, or at least in California. So that's the, and, and the other thing that this guy from the association was saying was that if you are a truck going into the port itself, you have even far greater restrictions being imposed upon you. So it's, it's, how do you get that product off the ship onto a truck to take it to the inland empire, to transfer it to a, a permanent you know, or not a permanent, it's not the right term, but a, a long haul truck, mm -hmm. you know, so you, you have the short haul truck that gets it from the dock to the, to the warehouse and then from the warehouse to, you know, wherever else in the country it's going. And so how are you going to do that? Um, so how are you going to get those trucks to be charged? Number one. So you gotta, you gotta build all the vehicles. You gotta have the money to buy the vehicles. Then you gotta have the infrastructure for the power to charge the vehicles. And this guy gave one example of a single company with 40 trucks, only 40 trucks. And the for them to build a uh, sort of a substation uh, to generate the electricity to power, to charge those 40 trucks would require the equivalent amount of electricity 
as powering 15,000 homes. Mm. And, you know, so you start putting things into those kinds of, you know, context, relative mm-hmm. context, and it's like, oh my gosh, how is this possibly going to happen? And now the other issue is you have an internal combustion engine. You leave Los Angeles and you want to drive to Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you have two or three drivers, you can do that round the clock, stopping only for gas and be there in, I don't know, whatever amount of time that takes, 36 hours, let's say. Now do that with an electric vehicle Mm -hmm. that has to stop every 500 miles or less to charge. And how long is that going to take for them to charge? So now a 36-hour trip, which realistically, they're not going to do it in 36 hours because they got to stop and sleep and other things. But um, but even still, if you were able to just do a nonstop drive, stopping only for fuel or recharging, that 36-hour uh, trip now probably becomes, you know, four, four days, five days, maybe more. I don't even know. I'm, you know, I'm just saying you can't physically get there as fast, which Mm -hmm. makes it a lot, you know, it's now what you got an employee and truck driver sitting there twiddling his or her thumbs while they wait for a few hours while that truck gets charged. Well, even if you could afford this electricity, where's it going to come from? I've got this picture of a gerbil and a wheel all over North America going faster and faster. Well, <laughs> I mean, personally, we went out a couple of years ago and bought a generator. Yeah. I, I don't want a brownout. I don't want a snow vid. If I'm watching a ball game and I lose electricity, as you well know, it's not pretty. <laughs> yeah, there is no command given faster <laughs> in the United States or probably the world then when the power goes out and it's summer you're hot and there's a ball game <laughs> that is not, i need a fridge and a tv not, and if I'm you're hungry <laughs> and you want to cook something we have electric cooking in our house unfortunately now you can't cook either or zap something in the microwave man there is nothing faster than the whip that comes hey. out on my back to get you that, get that <laughs> Get that generator cranked up and plugged in. It's worse than that. I, when I lose electricity, I lose my internet and I can't even DoorDash. <laughs> I tried standing on my front stoop going, bring me food. And you know what? It didn't work. <laughs> well, I, I guess, you know, try not to, you know, beat this horse too badly, but to go slightly further in this conversation, how many more trucks is that 40 truck company going to have to buy to still move the same amount of material in the same amount of time? Mm. Because now instead of those trucks being able to move, you know, all day long, well, half of them are going to have to be sitting idle charging charging, while the other half are. So what are they going to need? 80 trucks now, 120. I don't know. And if they wanted to build that little substation to charge those 40 trucks, how long is it going to take to get that built? Again, from this guy's uh, description, it would likely take about 10 years to get all the regulations and permitting and the equipment um, delivered to actually build that substation. Well, and I was hearing from someone, I don't remember who, but there was a building thinking about putting in a plug-in pad. I don't even know what you call them. And like, 
at our library over here, there's six bays where you can plug your car while you're in the library. Right. And someone was talking about retrofitting an existing building that was a business to have a pad where their customers could come and charge. I It was an astronomical figure to build that. Yeah. I can't even remember the number. So you have to have the upfront money to build that. Then you have to have the power source that can supply the power to that. I, I just, I'm kind of. Well, and the, from again, I'm, I'm going back to this podcast. I listened mm -hmm. to interviewing this particular guy and he was saying that the charging, um, the power required for a charging station to charge up a EV passenger vehicle is a whole different ball of wax than mm -hmm. trying to plug in and charge mm -hmm. a truck hauling however much 80,000 pounds. And so it's at a whole different level, which requires far greater power. And, uh, and so, you know, so he was just talking about California because he's head of California truckers association. So that's his focus. But one of the things he mentioned was that there are companies that are going to start coming up with interesting strategies for how to deal with this. So maybe they have their EVs in California, if they can get power and, other companies are going to set, set up operations at the California state line to transfer all the um, all the uh, cargo mm -hmm. into internal combustion engine trucks to go throughout the rest of the country. The problem with that, however, is all these regulations are starting in California, but they're going to creep over into a lot of other states. And you also have the EPA at a federal level that has their own uh, regulations. And in fact, the thing that you referred to earlier about the, the, um, uh, California state air regulators and the truck manufacturers coming to an agreement that actually was bringing, uh, some of the California, uh, expectations in line with the federal regulations or, or goals. Anyway, I, I don't know if regulations is the right term at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, so I think the whole issue here is in the the timing. It seems like there's this incongruity mismatch, if you will, between the air quality goals and, and objectives of California regulators with the um, ability of the infrastructure to actually achieve those goals. And now so, maybe well, what about I'm wondering if every industrial building could put a solar farm on their roof, because most industrial buildings are flat roofed. Yes. I just, is this going to become something we're going to see those little well, yeah. TP things on top of every well, warehouse? Already. I mean, if you, if you're, if you go over the flyover at um, highway 121 and the tollway in Dallas, the far North Dallas at Plano and Frisco, and you look over at the Ikea, their entire roof mm. is nothing but a, an array for solar panels. That's true. Uh, now there, I don't think they're, charging evs with that maybe i don't know maybe they are but um again you know one of the things that i i read uh, somewhere else was that only three percent of commercial industrial rooftops have solar panels on them right now so there's a great opportunity so yeah they're i mean huge opportunity i mean 87 percent or 97 percent don't have that now mm -hmm. so there's opportunities to add that whether or not the um solar panels are up to the task of charging EVs, especially commercial, you know, truck EVs that 
I don't know the answer to that. That and maybe there's new uh, technologies that'll be coming along that's going to ramp this up and and sort of help meet the demand. Um, I don't know, but it's certainly um, going to be interesting to watch to see if this can be can be uh, achieved in any way. I'm 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 skeptical of it at the moment, but hopefully, hopefully they'll be able to do that. So well, I guess the the conclusion of all this, I, from from my perspective, is that um, you know regulation appears to be way ahead of the capacity to achieve mm -hmm. compliance with those regulations. Technology needs to get busy to find <laughs> solutions. I mean, if you're in the solar, you got to think they are. Yeah, if you're in solar, if you're in EV, whatever. Um, but the other thing is, governments are going to have to get realistic on how they're going to enforce this because you know. It, I understand that the California laws have like um, some um, fines built in for noncompliance. So it, it could turn into just a money grab. Uh, one other thing about California that was interesting, they also are regulating warehouses themselves. So as a way to try and not put any more reg regulations on the trucks themselves, they're putting demands on the warehouses. And so if I'm understanding correctly, what they were saying was that the warehouse operator has to track the vehicle ID numbers of every vehicle coming in and off, in and out of their, their property. And I can't remember exactly what the requirements are, but something they have to like know what kind of um, uh, emissions are being generated by those vehicles coming in and out. And there's a limit on the warehouses above a certain size. Um, as to how much emissions can be um, generated on their property by these trucks. So they're I, forcing I, the warehouse owners to become the implementers of their laws. I, I, I don't know that the it's enforcers. The, I don't know that it's the owners of the warehouses or if it's just the users of the warehouses. I, I would suspect it's more the user than the owner, which could be one and the same. And, you know, if, if a, if a distributor owns the, the property instead of leasing it, but but yeah, so that's kind of an end run around trying to say, well, hey, we're not regulating the trucks, we're re we're regulating the warehouses, and you know, right? So is is that is that legal? Is that feasible? And that's going to create opportunities for tech because now how are you going to track all that stuff? Fleet you know? dating. It, it's just like they start implementing all that stuff into the trucks, so that when the truck driver said, "Oh, I was I was to Amarillo by morning." No, you weren't. You were over here doing this and we have pictures. <laughs> well, you were <laughs> and, in the in insurance industry and you guys used it for insurance purposes too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they that's gosh, I'm not going to talk about how long ago it was, but it's been around for a long time and it was a great way for the owner of the trucking company to know where his vehicle was, to know how fast it was being driven. I mean, there were he was getting a break on his insurance rate by installing those uh, devices inside each of his trucks. So I would think it will just be the kind of thing, it'll be like a breathalyzer for a truck. The a dock employee is going to have a gun. And when you drive up, he's going to shoot you and it'll have your VIN number. It'll have how much power you have, how much emissions you emit, all that kind of thing. Or and it'll tell it, oh, you blew clear. You didn't. You're out. <laughs> or there'll be a transponder on the vehicle and the transponder automatically, right. yeah. you know, 
talks to whatever the technology is. And yeah, I mean, there's got to be a way for this to be automated because there's no way. I mean, oh. how many more employees are you going to have to hire just to keep track of all this stuff? No. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. I mean, I see huge opportunities in all this. Mm -hmm. I also see huge costs and also lots of challenges. So bottom line is it's going to be interesting over the next 10 to 20 years or more to see how the industrial warehouse and trucking business, the whole supply chain business mm -hmm. chains and become changes and becomes much more uh, disciplined and, um, you know, interesting. Yeah. I, I look forward to seeing what happens in what our clients are asking for and how quickly landlords and developers respond to those needs. It, it should prove to be interesting. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. We enjoyed having you for another episode of the Confessions of a Recovering Landlord. See hey, you we'd next love time. we'd love to have your um, your five star review on uh, the typical podcast places. And uh, if you have a question or a topic you want us to talk about, please let us know. Bye. Till next time. Thank you for listening. And just a reminder to send in questions to see if we can stump Bob. Not gonna happen. We really appreciate your taking the time to tune into this episode. We would love it if you would give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And if you are on our YouTube channel, we would love to read your feedback in the comment section. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get notified when we publish new episodes. Thanks and see you next time. Bye.